Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist. To focus on the emotional connection more than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Welcome, listeners. I'm Aaron, here with my favorite deputy, Patch. Howdy, howdy, howdy. And this is episode 100. Yes! <laughs> this is when we need sound effects. This would make a great opportunity for sound effects work. But we are better than sound effects. We are. We are. So we had a bit of a hard time, Patrick, deciding what single movie would be memorable enough to cover on such a special episode. And so ultimately, we decided to cheat. And instead of one, we are covering three movies. We are going to do our first coverage of a trilogy, in fact. And over the course of the next three days, we are going to release episodes on Toy Story, Toy Story 2, and Toy Story 3. So to infinity and beyond, my friend. I loved that idea when you suggested it a while back. I was like, it's, it seems perfect to have uh, a movie trilogy as our 100th episode. And what better movie trilogy than one about friendship uh, with Toy Story? So I'm so glad you suggested it. I'm really, really excited to talk about it over the next three days. Me too. And, you know, it, it was interesting because when we were when we were going through some ideas and we were kicking them around and, you know, we've we've kind of avoided trilogies thus far in our podcast, which is kind of crazy when you think about it. Here we are at 100 main episodes and probably about 150 total episodes, and we've never covered a trilogy when we both love trilogies and series. But the thing is, we we want to make sure we do them justice, right? And we want to give them the appropriate attention. And, and it's hard because they don't really fit in the way that we do the show very well because we bounce from theater pick to at-home pick and back and forth. But you're right. I think that Toy Story was just kind of the inspired perfect pick because of the traditional theme of friendship that runs throughout this entire series. And, you know, and because it goes back to our childhood. I mean, these are movies that they first came out when we were still together, you know, mm -hmm. and, and, and that's, that's important and that's pretty cool. So it's, it gives it that extra bit of um, specialness for you and I, because that's how this podcast came to be. I mean, we're, we're best friends and, I really wanted to talk about movies. Uh, I used to do it to my car stereo all the time. I was listening to podcasts like Film Spotting, and I would have conversations with Adam and Josh um, or have conversations with Dean from uh, the Science Fiction Film Podcast. I'd talk back to them, even though they, they never responded, which was cool because they had to listen to my opinions. But you know, <laughs> like that's how I initially got into podcasting, was yeah. listening to them on my commute. And ultimately, I eventually wanted to talk about them, and I was like, man – I want to talk about them with you. Um, yeah. We started having more conversations over voice chat and, you know, and then this came to be, and um, it's, it's just such a cool tie in, I think, to the way yeah. that Toy Story works. Yeah, absolutely. I remember, I guess, vividly, clearly, well, at least in my head and in my head, apparently everything is clear. The, the, this concept of, of wanting to talk about movies, but not necessarily wanting to do it in a podcast form. I mean, you and I just love going back and forth talking about, um, entertain, entertainment specifically. And I think some of this was inspired by, 
yes, the things that we were looking forward to from a movie standpoint, but we had just started doing the Battlestar Galactica TV series. And we thought, Hey, how cool would it be if we could just kind of, you know, talk to each other a couple of times a week, go through this, because I think we both understand that when you experience a show, a movie, a song, uh, some piece of art, that part of that part of that enjoyment comes from sharing that experience with someone else. And I think it was maybe it wasn't I don't know what like officially inspired us to do a podcast, but I remember you telling me that you wanted to at some point get on a podcast and real world theology was one of the ones that you were listening to and how you wanted to maybe guest on there at one point. And so that's correct. You said, Hey, why don't we, why don't we cover, you know, why don't we do 2001? You know, why don't we get on uh, Google chat or whatever it was at the time and let's just talk about the movie so I can get kind of some experience and hearing myself talk and, and talking through. And that was sort of out in the ether and then BVS rolls around and our frustration with <laughs> with the unnecessary criticism that was that was coming towards it, at least from a from a sense of just being uh hateful from, yes. from our opinion and how we lo- we looked at this movie kind of as a representation of a trend that we saw mm-hmm. in terms of critics people in general having voices and those voices lending themselves to just being overly negative about a particular film. And that of course lent itself to saying, okay, let's, you know what, let's, let's skip 2001. Let's do BVS. And so episode one became episode two, became episode five, (laughs) became episode 10. And here we are a hundred plus episodes later talking about what has evolved as feel and film. I mean, even our original idea about this podcast wasn't what it has become. And I'm so grateful that we've been able to evolve it, that it's been able to evolve with our love for movies. And it's been able to give us an opportunity to touch other pockets of the movie universe. Mm -hmm. Uh, Most recently getting a chance to interview Adam Rakoff and Matthew Modine, uh, from the inspired Full Metal Jacket episode, uh, Director Month, Back to School Month, these these things, these themes, these uh, celebrating of the times of year that we are are getting into, and how film becomes that centerpiece for us to be able to to talk about that. It's just it's wonderful, man. I, I'm so glad that I get to do this with you. I'm glad that I get to uh, stay up late and lose sleep every <laughs> Sunday night and, and talk about movies. Sometimes it can be a grind, especially if we're recording a lot of stuff in a short period of time. But at the end of the day, end of the week, uh, when I see an episode drop and I see and hear responses in our Facebook group and, and see reviews on iTunes of people just being encouraged and enjoying what we're doing, it's just incredibly gratifying. I'm so grateful and I'm still surprised. I mean, why would people want to hear us talk? I have no idea, but I'm glad <laughs> to do and I'm glad we're doing this. Well, I'm grateful for you too. I'm grateful for that lack of sleep that you sacrifice every single week. And, you know, the the cool thing about doing this with your best friend, um, and I, I can't speak to other podcasters who may have come together via other methods that maybe they didn't know each other beforehand, but at least for Patrick and I, 
you know, we can be in a rotten mood and, and it, we're podcasters second and we're everything else pretty much first, right? We're parents, we're, we're husbands or um, we're workers. We, we have all of these responsibilities. And so we do these things in our free time. And this is our hobby. And this is our passionate hobby that can be like a second job to us because we commit so much to it, but it is, it is a hobby. And so we can come to the podcast frustrated, tired, late, um, having had issues putting our son down or, you know, coming straight off of a, uh, you know, an event and just rolling into the house five minutes before showtime. And the, the cool thing that we have both experienced is I think because of our relationship, every time we get on camera and we see each other and we sit down to talk, it's, it's like this, this calming breeze comes over us and we, we, we get in the moment and we realize like, okay, I'm here and I'm going to talk to my friend about movies and it's going to be awesome. And it, and it always is every single time, you know, it's always worth it. Um, and I love that about it. I love that. I love that you mentioned the evolution of the show and how, you know, I remember the very first couple of episodes we initially had a section specifically, I was like, well, we need to have a section where we talk about the things that we don't like. And that did not last very long. And I'm grateful that that did not last very long. We, we can't X that we took it out. We said, no, we want to, you know, we may bring up things that we don't like within the flow of a conversation, but we don't want to highlight that. We don't want to give it a section. Uh, And then the amazing idea of the connecting point, which has really become something that our listeners um, resonate with and that they tell us what theirs is. And it, it's a point of emphasis for people to use, to think about when they're watching movies as well as you and I. Mm-hmm. And so, I, I mean, I love that that came into existence as well. It's, uh, yeah. it's really been so much fun. So throughout the evolution of, of these hundred plus episodes, uh, were there any highlights for you, anything that stood out in terms of favorite episode or favorite moment that, that you would chalk up as like, yeah, that's definitely going to be a, um, a highlight for me that I think about even throughout the, the lifespan of our, of our podcast. Yeah, there is. And I would love if we could eat I'm sure that there's at least six total. So I'm hoping that we can just <laughs> each have one each, you know, for each of these three episodes um, and just highlight those, those experiences. And for me, the first one and not necessarily the first chronologically, but the one that I want to mention um, is actually episode 10. And that was when we covered Jaws. It was our first classical blockbuster that we took a look at. And we didn't, I don't even think we had a connecting point back then. I was looking through the notes and yet this has the moment in it, the part in the podcast that is probably what I would have initially thought was my most memorable connecting point, even though it wasn't one. Um, Jaws was the first time we had ever inserted audio into the podcast as well. We don't do that almost at all because it takes a lot of work and um, it's just usually not necessary. But in this one, the speech that's made by Quint, where he is telling the story of the USS Indianapolis is just so important to me and with my history as a United States Navy uh, chief petty officer and the training and the history that I went through to learn about the USS Indianapolis and, and my brothers and sisters who, who died in those waters. Listening to Quint's speech is very, very powerful to me. It's very important. And so I wanted to play it and, and I was able to, you were on board with that. And it was, it was in our favorite scene section at the time is what we called it, uh, which has kind of evolved now into that connecting point. 
And that was the one that helped inspire it because I remember being very emotional after that speech and talking and telling my own story. And it was just, it was so cool. It was such a, a different way to talk about movies. And it was, I think for me, the first time that I, 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 I don't want to say the first time I felt film because, you know, obviously that's our title, but it was, it was such a strong feeling. It really cemented for me what the podcast can be and what I hope that it can be for other people as well. Um, to remain, remember those things, to think about those scenes that affect you emotionally like that. And, and then even understand that other people have that same reaction to you. Even if you're watching that movie by yourself, you can listen to podcasts and hear me talk about it and you can kind of have that conversation with me, uh, by proxy. So that that's mine. Episode 10 jaws. And, you know, I really love that one. I, I just, I thought it was great. I think that you and you talked earlier about how sometimes when we, when we begin a podcast episode, oftentimes we've got some, things happening that are during pregame essentially that we kind of have to compartmentalize and, and lock out for the hour, hour and a half that we're recording. And um, I remember thinking about that episode and I think you and I would say that there are probably a handful of episodes that when we finish recording, like immediately we're like, that was good. Not like we were good. I don't mean to sound egotistical, but you know, you have that feeling where like, yes. man, everything was just, we're on lock. Uh, we didn't feel like we were stumbling over ideas. We felt like we were moving from point to point. And, and I'm sure anybody that, that does some kind of, uh, you know, radio show or things where they're, it's, it, it, it's not edited, you know, that you, you don't have a lot that you have to, you know, muscle through during the editing process. And I felt like that was the first one that you and I both agreed, man, that was, that was really good. I felt like we, we said what we wanted to, it was concise. We didn't feel like we were rambling and things like that. Cause we're always giving that, um, that constructive criticism to make sure that we make the show better. Uh, we're always conscious of that. And I thought that, um, that episode was one that stood out to me in terms of being almost perfect in our minds. And it's the one that, I think we both push people to whenever we they're do. like, yeah, we're like, Hey, what should I start with? And we both go like, without even thinking about it, go with jaws uh, because it had everything. I think that we, in, that we wanted in an episode of feeling film, mm-hmm. even without the official connecting point, because you're right. Having those moments where you're able to talk about a scene that inspires that a scene that, that leaves you just thinking, leaves you uh, emotionally changed. That's the essence of what feeling film is. And the truth is we don't have that all the time. I mean, we, you and I have both realized that there have been movies that we watch where a connecting point doesn't exist and that's okay because our slogan isn't every movie has a connecting point. <laughs> our slogan is everybody makes us feel <laughs> something. And so it may leave us feeling confused or mad or uh, excited. But the fact is, I think every movie does give us an emotional takeaway uh, and it may be one that isn't always great, but it's so cool to have connecting points because I think those amplify a particular emotion that we might be feeling. And of course, Jaws did that for you. What about you? Did you have one that stuck out to you already? Yeah, I was thinking about it. Episode 39 comes to mind and that was the episode that we did on passengers. And um, (laughs) (laughs) the thing that I loved about this and (laughs) this was not, this was not the first episode where, we had both kind of disagreed offline in terms of how we 
took, you know, what we took away from the movie. Uh, but I remember, and, and, and both, we both try, when it comes to theater picks, we both try to avoid giving the other person, this is, I mean, this is before you got to see, you know, screeners ahead of time. So you're always going to see movies ahead of me. But at the time when one of us was seeing a movie before the other, um, we've tried to stay mum as far as our reaction to it. That way it doesn't influence the other person's like expectations going in. So I came out of it really enjoying it. And I remember you had said uh, offline that you weren't really digging it. And yeah. I, I remember saying, you know, I, I can't really, I really can't stop thinking about it. There's just something about it that I, I want to go back and I want to see it again. And you're like, you know, I kind of think I want to do that too. I'm, I'm still kind of thinking about it, but here's what I love about the podcast uh, among the other things that we've mentioned is the fact that every once in a while we get moments where one of us says something, something is said and it inspires us to think about the movie differently and it changes our opinion of the film. And for me, it was that aha moment <laughs> that I got to hear you have with regards to the ship possibly being sentient. I was actually talking to a friend of mine today about the fact that <laughs> I believe Mikey from the, <laughs> from Real World Theology said it's the best th fan theory or <laughs> fan fiction that yeah. that's out there. And maybe it is, whatever. But the fact is... When we when we talked about the fact that the ship possibly could have been sentient and it woke Jim up on purpose, hearing you go, wait, hold on, and hearing you just kind of specifically take a step back and go, let me process this, mm -hmm. to see that reaction was incredibly organic. It's no secret that we have show notes. It's no secret that we have topics that we write down that we want to talk about. And we try not to script a ton because we want to make sure the conversation stays organic. But it's moments like that that I think are pretty fantastic because it changes those opinions and it enhances the enjoyment of a movie, not only through a discussion, but also on rewatches. And as a result, that movie is now in our trophy room for all of our five mutual five-star movies as it should be. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a good one. I, I still, I, it's on, that's the thing. Like if that happens, it's there forever and it, I can't, get rid of it so i can't <laughs> pretend it didn't happen uh i was in such shock man i was blown away by that and yeah that was it is it is cool when that happens i agree and that was a a really good episode as well that was one that we left going wow that was fun that was a good time yeah all right well with that done why don't we get jumping into the first of these toy story movies sounds great sounds great all right. Well, as we usually do, giving our spoiler warning here real briefly. I, I mean, if you don't, if you haven't seen Toy Story and or Toy Story Two or Toy Story Three at this point, please, seriously, what I mean, go just go watch the movies because I don't even know who you are <laughs> unless you're like a six year old listening to us and you have a sad, strange little men are listening to us if they haven't seen. It. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well. One word takeaway is, is we're going to do these normal. So one word takeaways, connecting points, just going to be a little bit shorter than normal, most likely, but um, same format. For me, Patrick, I'm going to cheat on this first one, and I won't use this word again for the next two movies. But because it was the first time I'd rewatched this in a while, I've got to go with kind of the obvious one word takeaway, and that is nostalgic. Okay. These movies, and this movie in particular... This was released in 1995, but when I was watching it, uh, a song from 1996 kept coming into my head, and that is a song for the ages. 
Celine Dion's It's All Coming Back to Me Now. That's how I felt watching Toy Story for the first time in maybe a a decade, it feels like. This is a buddy movie. It is about friendship. It is about using our imagination. It's about remembering playing with those toys when we were kids. You've Got a Friend in Me, that memorable, iconic song from this movie. There's so many moments, so many scenes that I immediately could recall in my head that then when they started happening, so many awesome quotes. And I think that for me, the film just so perfectly captures that childhood memory we have of playing make-believe with your toys, of pretending that you're something you're not and using them to tell stories and just serve as surrogate friends when you didn't have any over and you had to play by yourself. Everyone, everyone can relate to this movie in some form or fashion, I feel like. And so it is special. It is amazing. We're obviously going to go deep into why, but it is it, it has given me the most powerful sense of nostalgia that I've had watching a movie in a long, 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 long time. Yeah, nostalgia is definitely nostalgic is definitely an operative word to to describe this movie and the trilogy as a whole. Uh, for me, the word is change. And back in '95, when this movie came out, at at that point, we had been exposed to the the machine that was Disney. You know the the great animation and the fun song and dance routines, cartoon universe that we've been exposed to with the beauty and the beast, Aladdin, uh, the little mermaid. And so the studio comes along Pixar animation. And in 1995, it does something to me that I think animated film had not done. And that's made me get emotional, made me connect with a cartoon uh, beyond just being laughter. And so Pixar changed the landscape of animation and storytelling with this movie, not only with the, uh, with the way in which they were doing CG as opposed to hand-drawn animation, but also with the stories themselves, the, the smart tiny tune adventure esque type writing, if you could call it that, uh, that was a very, you know, those, those shows like that were very big where you have, an audience of not only kids, but an audience of adults that were being catered to. And this studio was, uh, was fundamental in helping me understand the cinematic formula, you know, these stories in three acts and it's simple in its structure. It's the one that I, I look at when I go back to thinking about how does a three act structure work? Well, let's, let's look at toy story. But what's interesting is the trilogy as a whole works as a three act structure anyway. And we'll, I'm I'm hoping that we kind of touch on that over the course of these next three, three episodes on how that works, because it's really interesting in and of itself that as a whole, the franchise works that way. But, you know, for this particular movie, the, the three act structure is very poignant and it's, it's simple, but it tells this timeless story about friendship, grief, and the ability to change and even when it's within its narrative, we we deal with this idea of what it means to change, what it means to have something kind of usurp our world and cause us to adapt to it. And um, 
you know, I think Pixar was doing that for me and for animation. It was like, look, there's a new kid in town and we're doing something a little different. Uh, and like any popular property, it eventually got bought out by Disney. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that so, is about how it works these days. Hey, you know, we will know the podcast has made it big time when Disney buys us. Yeah, exactly. You know, so, uh, you know, if, if feeling film brought to you by Disney comes around at some point with our episode four or 500 or whatever it is, then yeah, I'll, I'm, I won't say I'm, I'll be disappointed in that. Get your Aaron and patch dolls in the Tomorrowland gift shop. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> you know why I said Tomorrowland? Because that's where the Pixar ride is. Well, that's where the original Toy Story ride was. They made a second. Uh, okay. In Disneyland, there's a second one now that's at California Adventure. But oh, the California one. I'm yeah. I'm, uh, yeah living, living closer to Florida, I'm I'm used to the Disney World. Oh, that's right. Your family does make trips out there. Yeah. So not me. My family does. Not me. I, I know. I know. Actually, that's true. It's like, <laughs> see you guys. <laughs> we'll we'll just stay here in Arkansas and we'll we'll hold the fort down. It's cool. Yeah. So have fun. Are you saying Toy Story specifically this Toy Story movie in three acts, or were you talking more about like the idea of the trilogy of the Toy Story? Well, both. I mean, the, the specifically this movie. Okay. I was saying that this movie is one that if if I'm talking to someone about film and we talk about and I mentioned yeah the third act was great and they say well what does that mean? I get to say well okay here's how movies are generally structured in three acts and toy story is a great example because you have the the plot of the main character with woody you have the the conflict and i mean it follows a basic narrative if you under, if you know anything about you know storytelling narrative um you have those types of uh types of elements but toy story really uh paints that that picture beautifully but what i found as i've watched the trilogy uh over years past that in some ways the trilogy themselves, uh, the trilogy itself is a three act story, particularly for Woody. I mean, Woody deals with some really interesting stuff over the course of these three films. And we may hit on some of that as, as we talk through this, but, but yeah, more specifically, I was talking about the first installment. Yeah. I want, I thought you were, and then I was as curious if you meant trilogy at all, because what's going to happen when there's a fourth one. Then it's it's going to frustrate me is what it's going to do until I mean, it's amazing. I know, but I just want ugh, I just need to say this and say this to everyone listening. Don't do this to me, Pixar. It's fine. It's already it happening. Home. I don't think you home. could stop it, Patrick. No. Like, oh, I, I don't think. I think it's too late. I don't uh-huh. think a fan petition is going to derail. Hope if, they bring back Lotso. Okay. <laughs> anyway, we'll get into that. Wrong movie. Or we're, we're in Toy Story One. We still are dealing with little green army men. Um, okay. So the first thing, quick piece of history before we jump into um, story and such, and we'll talk. Actually, we'll talk about the the structure and the screenplay and and stuff first up. But I, I do want to briefly mention for those that are not aware that this is the first fully computer animated feature length film in cinema history. And because I don't like to rewrite the wheel and try to say things better than masters of this craft have said, I'm literally just going to read this. This is something that Roger Ebert wrote. I believe it came from his Toy Story review. Um, He said, I learn from the current Wired magazine that the movie occupied the attention of a bank of 300 powerful Sun microprocessors, the fastest models around. 
which took about 800,000 hours of computing time to achieve this and other scenes at 2 to 15 hours per frame. Each frame required as much as 300 megabytes of information, which means that on one gigabyte hard disk, you would have room for about three frames or an eighth of a second. (laughs) Of course, computers are as dumb as a box of bricks if they're not well-programmed, and that is where director John Lasseter, who of course now is a legend, uh, he is a pioneer in computer animation, and he used his imagination and his high energy to program this in there. But dude, like just thinking back to those numbers and the fact that they're from 1995, even even now, those numbers seem enormous to me. Yeah, it's one of those things where at the time you're not thinking about that, but when you look back on it, you're going, how can someone or how can a team of people even think that far ahead when it comes to seeing animation and seeing a story be told in a way that is that complex. I mean, like you said, this is the first fully animated, fully CG uh, feature film. And you, you look at that and you go, why would anyone want to commit to that? (laughs) Because if you're talking about two to three hours just to, just to render a frame, and how many frames are in this what hour and a half long movie? Um, that says a lot. I mean, we talked we've talked about the the fact that ninety minute movies tend to be um, indicative of films that aren't really great if they're under an hour and a half. At least that's the consensus for feature films sometimes. Uh, but to think about an animated feature, which you know usually runs between an hour and a half to two hours, because you know the the attention span of a child. But to think about that in light of the time spent to develop a frame inside this 90 minute feature. I mean, you've got to have some pretty big vision to, and some pretty big commitment from your animators and from your, from your designers and from your engineers to say, we want to do this. Well, what came from it was something that was pretty incredible. And I'm glad that technology has advanced to a point where we can get more for less because we get that. We get that um, in things like Toy Story 2 and 3, all the other Pixar movies. And there's more focus now on the stories themselves as opposed to the the animation. The animation becomes a supporting actor to the story as opposed to a, oh, wow, look at what they're doing now. you know. And, and I think that the story itself and the stories themselves are where Pixar uh, finds their strength more than anything else beyond just their animation prowess. Oh, Definitely the truth. I mean, Pixar, that is what has made them so special um, for so long during this this run. And I, I would say that we are getting into a time now where we're seeing more and more animation that is equally as good as Pixar with equally as good storytelling. Uh, but there was a string of about 20 years here where Pixar dominated that idea you know, their movies were the ones with the emotional punch. Their their movies were the ones we could resonate with and that could could give us a little bit more depth than a Disney fairy tale that we were used to. And so they are special and they will always be special for that. And I think this year is a great example of that kind of kind of a renaissance in a lot of ways of that with Coco. You know, this is kind of coming back 
Mm-hmm. And so no matter what you, where you place Coco overall, I think everybody enjoyed Coco and everybody understood and felt that aspect of Pixar and Coco, that storytelling, that the, the, what we remember from going back to movies like Toy Story yeah. and the Incredibles and, and all of the best. Well, it feels thoughtful. I mean, each, each film, I think, is uh, beginning with Toy Story, um, is this idea of every film feeling thoughtful in its narrative, not just feeling like we're going to crank out great animation and funny scenes and, and good cast and all that. But each, each movie felt like it was uh, cared for by its creators and by its creative team. And, and Pixar began to elevate that bar of what it meant to care about your stories. And not that Disney wasn't doing that, but you mentioned the word fairy tale. I mean, these were, these were movies that beginning with Toy Story were dealing with inanimate objects coming to life. Cars is another great example. And I think the opening scene of Toy Story really epitomizes what Pixar did from an animation standpoint and from a storytelling standpoint in that they gave themselves the opportunity to say, what if, you know, what can we imagine? And I would love to have been in the writer's room or this, the design lab or whatever it is they call their creative box. And they say, what kind of, what kind of characters can we create? And somebody says, well, why don't we have uh, a talking toy or toys that come to life? Why don't we have um, cars? Why don't we do a movie about a car that does this? And so their strength for me has always been taking the ordinary and making it extraordinary. And that's what elevates them for me as an animation studio. 100% agree with that. And I love that you brought up that just briefly and saying, you know, well, I want, these are ideas. Like, let's kick this around. How, how do we get to Toy Story? Because I want to talk a little bit about that, about the history of this. So this is actually based on an original Pixar short called Tin Toy. And it won the first Pixar Oscar ever. It was the best animated short film in 1988. Patrick, my kids and I went back and watched it. Don't. It's terrible. It is awful. And it is creepy. And I have no idea how it won an Oscar. If you compare that short, Tin Toy, to all five of the ones that we just watched for this year's Oscar noms, I, I just can't even express the difference <laughs> it is it is it's crazy but honestly it is out there it's on youtube i believe if anyone's interested it's called tin toy in the background um of toy story when they're having the staff meeting at the very kind of opening of the film there is a book on one of the shelves called tin toy so lots of little nods uh, i started picking up on a lot of them during this watch pixar loves their easter eggs and, and their puns and their jokes and there's no shortage of them in there uh, so that was kind of cool. And I, I would, I would actually, I'm joking. I would encourage people to go check it out because what you learn from 10 toy is that is it's really just a similar concept concept of toys coming alive. And the creepy part is there's a, a baby that is way too like just evil, realistic, creepy looking. And it's out of place with the rest of the animation. <laughs> um, and it's just, Ooh, it's, 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 it'll haunt your mind, man. It's like a horror movie. There's no Woody and there's no Buzz and there's no relational aspect to it that came later. Um, and so an early rough draft of Toy Story was actually a disaster. And here's how it was described by Amy Pascal um, in, in a book called Joss Whedon, The Biography. And the reason I'm saying that is because for those who don't know, Joss Whedon was a major part of the 
script of Toy Story. Yes, that Joss Whedon, our beloved Joss. Um, the, she says, the movie was unwatchable. The story had lost the heart that Tin Toy had. The leads, Woody the Cowboy and Buzz Lightyear the Astronaut, were sarcastic and unlikable. Not exactly ideal heroes for a children's movie. Notably, the lead character of Cowboy Woody was a, quote, bitter toy who berated and insulted all the other toys and was bound and determined to destroy Buzz. Maybe not that far off from what we actually get, but he's nicer about it. Um, it wasn't until Whedon, who had recently created Buffy the Vampire Slayer, was asked to step in and help refocus the script. The film started to look a lot more like the version of Toy Story that we know. Whedon says, they sent me the script and it was in shambles, but the story that Lasseter had come up with was, you know, the toys are alive and they have conflict. The concept was gold. And so what was originally planned to be a three-week kind of rewrite job by Whedon turned into more than six months of working with Pixar and really fleshing this out and giving us the Toy Story that we know today. Pretty awesome. cool thing about this movie that I actually didn't know until recently. That's really mind-blowing and at the same time not surprising at all. Uh, to know what we know about Joss Whedon and his writing, it makes a lot of sense to get the in-jokes and the the story, the 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 timing of the lines. And all that is, is, of course, only made better by the cast of just these all-star actors who have come together to, to make this these these toys come alive literally and uh cinematically and uh but uh, yeah i didn't know that either i thought that that's wow joss whedon <laughs> yes yeah thank thank you joss because who knows i mean what we would have this kick-started everything patrick i mean who who knows where we would have gone with pixar or if it would have even taken off had this movie failed mm -hmm. there's hey. no telling where this direction would have gone being the flagship of the of the Pixar world, uh, as far as its feature films, it had to do something. It had to make a splash and it had to be something that was connectable to its audiences. And I think it succeeded wonderfully. Absolutely. So the cast is one of the biggest strengths of this movie as well. Uh, in my opinion, it's one of the most memorable things about them. Uh, we had Tom Hanks, obviously playing Woody. We have Tim Allen, uh, playing Buzz Lightyear. Um, for those who are younger, I guess, and don't really know this, you know, Tim Allen, I guess, hasn't been much of an actor in the spotlight for a decade now. But at the time of Toy Story, Tim Allen was gigantic. Uh, he was a huge presence in the entertainment world. Was he? He was Tim the Toolman, right? Mm -hmm. Home okay. Improvement. Home Improvement. Yes. Um, the cast also has Don Rickles, John Ratzenberger. Oh, there's a there's a great little joke actually about home improvement. Um, what is it? It's uh, one of the toolboxes in Sid's room says Benford tools on it. Yeah. <laughs> ha, 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 ha. See, Pixar's good, man. And I got to admit, like, I, I think that they, by doing that Easter egg idea and by putting those little puns and in jokes in their films, they extend the watchability of them. They and they started it right here, clearly, because it makes me watch the movie differently. You know, mm -hmm. I, I can watch it once and go through it and experience it, the emotional story of Woody and Buzz and, and everything that happens in their friendship and their adventure. 
And then I can watch it again and really focus in on, I'm going to look for all the clues and, mm-hmm. and try to figure things out. And it, it's, it's a really brilliant concept. It is. And what it does is it elevates the team beyond just what we see on the screen. Because, you know, when you and I talk about um, movies and our interview with, with Matthew Modine, he brought this up that there are, there are creative teams that bring a movie together that oftentimes we talk about Christopher Nolan's movies because he's the director and the director usually gets the spotlight in terms of the, you know, it's a Christopher Nolan film or it's a, it's a, a Joss Whedon film or whatever. And, and, and rightly so. I mean, the director is just that he directs, but there's a creative team behind what makes these stories come to life. And when we see those little in jokes and Easter eggs and visual clues that connect us to actors and their other projects and things like that. Um, I think what it does is it says, Hey, there's more people involved in this than you might think. And we want to celebrate that. We want to celebrate the animators. We want to celebrate the set designers. We want to celebrate those people that help create this world beyond just those who are voicing the characters. We want to celebrate the world of, of the, the brands. I remember reading about, uh, when I guess it was when Toy Story Two came out, um, the I don't know who, who's the company that owns Barbie, Mattel, Mattel, I think Can't so. Remember. In any case, um, there were certain brands when when Pixar pitched these uh, because they wanted actual brands, they wanted real life uh, toy brands to be featured in their film so they could use things like Mr. Potato Head and Slinky, you know, all these different things. And there were a couple of, a couple of brands in particular that wouldn't buy off on that, particularly the Barbie uh, company, or at least the product of Barbie. Well, the success of Toy Story led to, I'm going to assume it was Mattel, Mattel to kind of change their mind. And they actually, I think, sought out Pixar and said, Hey, we want you to put Barbie in your next movie. That's fantastic. Because, you take a you take a property like this and you incorporate all these different kind of product placements, but you don't just do product placement with them. You actually amplify the the love of these particular uh, these particular toys like Connect Four and Checkers and uh, and Mr. Potato Head. And what it does for us as an audience is it connects us and connects our childhood to that because I remember playing with Army Men. And I remember playing with Mr. Potato Head and I remember playing with Speak and Spell. All of these things that I grew up playing with have now literally come to life on the screen. And it, uh, it causes me to appreciate not only those toys again, but the people behind them that said, hey, we should include these things because we know that will give an emotional connection to our audience of adults as well as have, having this fun time with the kids with, this, with these, the, the playtime and stuff. So true. And speaking of those toys, Patrick, which one do you have a favorite? Do you have a favorite that's not Buzz or Woody? Because we're going to separate them. They're special. Um, I like Rex. Rex, and, he's the dinosaur. Yes, he's the dinosaur. And um, I think you mentioned... Is it Rickles? I think it is. Rickles. Whoever... whoever yeah. it's, the, it's the guy who plays... Uh, Vassini, Vassini from uh, from Princess Bride. Oh, that's right, that's right. Yeah. And of course, name, gro- yes. gro- growing up and watching Princess Bride, that's who I'm hearing. I'm hearing, you know, inconceivable. You know that guy. Um, 
but he's such this he's such a cowardly lion in this who who longs to have more potential uh if it were possible i think he'd be the toy that was a hypochondriac like he nice and but the fact that he's a t-rex t-rexes make me laugh because they have those little arms you know and i feel like he wants to do so much but he's got these little arms that he can't like he can't reach out for tiny hands tiny Tiny hands. hands uh so yeah he's 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 my favorite outside of uh outside of woody and buzz well, I, I like them all. Um, and I, I can't cop out and use that as an answer, but I, so I'm going to go with Slink. This, this last viewing Slink really kind of connected with me. Um, I, I think he's, he's just adorable and he's very hesitant when the others give up on Woody. He, it was probably my favorite moment for him because he, he looks back and he doesn't want to leave. Everybody's, trying to leave Woody and, and, and and saying, you know, we're done with you. We think that you're going after buzz, but like, he doesn't want to give up. And I I really enjoyed seeing that he has good morals. He's trustworthy. And of course he comes in in the end um, and his critical point of saving everything. So I I just, I thought he's a a cool little peripheral character. And one thing that I'm really looking forward to in these rewatches, Patrick is focusing in some on these, secondary characters and seeing how they grow and what happens to them. Cause I don't remember honestly, a lot of their stories. I, I didn't remember which ones were in which movie. I little Bo peep. Uh, I kind of remembered a little bit about that. I was wondering where the heck Jesse was and what is his name? Rounder. What's the horse's name? Round. Uh, bullseye. Bullseye. Yes. Um, so I'm just, I'm excited to see how that progresses. All right. So buzz arrives and the movie's themes really start to pick up at that point. And we, we go from just the enjoyment and the cool aspect of seeing these characters come alive, which is so much fun to actual drama. (laughs) It's not quite Shakespearean in nature, but it is drama. And the toys start having to deal with these feelings of being replaced or this fear of no longer being needed. How does that, make you feel like how did, how did you react to the main theme and story here? Well, I definitely connected with it in terms of being the, both the kid who got the new toy and kind of discarded his other ones um, as well as being, you know, being the favorite of someone or something and kind of being discarded in favor of something else. Um, I'm the youngest of, of two siblings. So I never got that, Hey, uh, there's a new kid in town, a new baby, and I'm going to be the older brother. So I never actually got to experience that, but I have gotten to experience the, the sense of newness of being a new employee or being part of a, part of a group kind of wearing off when more new people show up several months later. And if there was any kind of focus on, on me, uh, it, how it kind of, shifted to being more towards uh, more new people. So I I think we can all agree and all relate to the fact that at some point we were new to someone or new to something and that someone or something came along after that and sort of became the replacement new thing for us. So on two levels, I can relate because I knew that, I actually had, I remember having remorse for my older toys when I would get something new and I would be a lot like 
the kid in the movie where I would sort of intentionally play with my older toys by bringing them into these new adventures I was playing with, with my new ones. And I, I thought that this was, you know, Andy was so perfect in terms of how he was portrayed at the beginning and the end of the movie using both Buzz and Woody uh, initially Buzz, but then Buzz and Woody at the end to, uh, to create these just original stories that didn't have to do with being a cowboy or being a space ranger that his, his stories incorporated both. He didn't have limits to that. And I think it celebrated the fact that all these toys were valuable in some way, shape or form. And so when the movie sets that up, it sets up the fact that, um, that buzz is the the new toy in town. I think early on, maybe it does this in, unintentionally, but it sets up the sense of hope. It says, you know what? Woody's still going to be important <laughs> because he may be the lead toy up to that point being usurped by buzz, but all those toys are especially uh, important to Andy. Um, they may not be as, as played with or as significant as buzz and eventually Woody or as Woody and eventually buzz, but they definitely have value. Yes, they, they definitely do. And I think you're right. I think the idea of things being disposable uh, comes into play here. For me, it resonates in a little bit of a more superficial way because I think about my personal obsessive personality. And I, when it comes to social media or when it comes to media and entertainment and things in general, hobbies, uh, up until the podcast, in fact, you know, I never really stuck with a hobby for any period of time. Now, I would I would do hobbies multiple times. I might get into comics, and I would go hard into comics. And I, I couldn't go a little bit. I would read 15 comics every month, and I would do that, and then I would blog about comics, and then I would podcast about comics, and then after six months, I would burn out. And I would be like, oh, wow, video games. And then I would be into video games and I would spend all my money on video games and go crazy in video games. And six months later, it'd be like, ooh, shiny. You know, like, what's the next topic? I'm going to read books, guys. I'm going to be the best book reader ever. And it feels kind of like that. Like that was my toys. Um, my new, the new shiny thing is the replaceable thing, right? The new, the new buzz. And we live in a culture that Toy Story is, is almost prescient in, in many ways because that's where we, so what we see now is it's all about what's new. I mean, you can't even like a video game can't even enjoy or a movie can't even enjoy its week of release hardly because next week it's, it's outdated. It's in the past. Like that was black Panther was a couple weeks ago. Like, aren't you going to see wrinkle of time? Like we're talking about wrinkle of time. Now we're done with black Panther. You know what I mean? Like that's the culture. And that's what this movie is showing us with buzz and Woody yeah. um, on, a, on a much more personal, you know, relatable scale. Yeah. There's definitely this idea of instant gratification and how that kind of devalues what something is, devalues what something is. And having a five-year-old, my wife and I deal with this quite a bit. He's got a room full of toys that he can't play with everything. And so we're we're constantly (laughs) telling them, Hey, we're going to get rid of some of your toys. What's his response? No, no, I'll, I'll play with them. I'll play with them. I might play with that in two years. Exactly. (laughs) He definitely gets that from me. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of a closet hoarder when it comes to things like that. I remember growing up and saying, I don't want to throw that away. I don't want to throw that away, even though I'll never play with it again, because there's a sense of nostalgia, ownership connection to those things, whether it's a toy or a game or something like that. I didn't want to give those things up, but now we live in a world where everything is digital, where we can dispose of everything. I think we talked a little bit about with Rakoff 
we mentioned uh, photos have now become just sort of, you know, because they're digital, you can't really, nothing's tangible when it comes to the, our memories, because we don't have photo albums. We have Instagram. Uh, We have all these things that because of the world that we live in and because we can get something now when we want it, you know, uh, if we want to see a movie right now, we can go on to to Amazon or iTunes or something and we can rent it. Um, We lose the value of things in the moment because other things can so easily replace them. And I think that's the idea of Christmas for a kid because it's something he looks forward to for 364 days because he's hoping for that one big toy. And is that bad? Yeah, I think in some ways it is because we lose the importance of what those things are. But at the same time, there is value in that because we are exposed to new things. But does it take away our appreciation of those older things? I think it can for sure. Well, another major topic here is identity that stuck out to me. And I, every time we every time we watch a movie now where identity is a major um, theme, I think about you because <laughs> that you love to talk about and you love to explore. Yeah. And I think that, that that's rightfully so because it's something that affects our world. Um, current everyday life is identity and how we feel, how we see ourselves, how we see others, how others see themselves in relation to us, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Um, so Buzz thinks he's real. I mean, that's what it boils down to. If you believe you're real, does that make it so, in your opinion? Um, I mean, this is sci-fi heady stuff here. It, <laughs> which makes sense because he's an astronaut. But Yes. Uh, and maybe he would have been a nice addition to the uh, Cloverfield Paradox. Um, you know, as a, as, Would have made it a lot better. <laughs> Sorry, Dig. Um, I don't know. I think he is... I mean, it's a good question. I, I think that it's what drives him to be who he is, but not to be the space ranger, to be Buzz Lightyear. Like he never doubts, even after finding out that he's one of a bazillion toys, he, his story arc, res, it, I'm trying to figure out how to describe it. I think it it goes up and down in terms of him being a a toy who recognizes who he is in terms of he's not a true space ranger, but he doesn't lose the fact that he's still important, that he's still valuable and that even the, the things about him have purpose. Like I, that's one thing about him that's really interesting when you contrast that against Woody is that Buzz, even after finding out that he's a toy He's an important toy and he has, he, I mean, he has his, his one, he has his couple of moments of being sad, but for the most part, he's always confident. That confidence shifts from being naive to being, uh, to being knowledgeable of who he is. And it doesn't change his ability to be the best of who he is as, as Buzz Lightyear. Although it does change his perception of being, He's important not because he's a space ranger, but because he's Andy's toy, and and I think that's that's where his uh, his story arc really finds its its elevation is in that moment. Yeah, I agree, and and it, he has. I do love kind of like plo, 
Wow, I don't know what language that was. Are we are we talking about Star Trek now? <laughs> oh, oh, that's going to be a memorable one. Um, <laughs> uh, I don't know what his problem is. I don't know where I was going with this. Uh, I remember now. So I don't know what his problem the thing is. That's, the thing that's interesting to me about Buzz's identity is really when he starts to question it. And there's this comparison I make to Ex Machina, a scene in Ex Machina where Buzz is seeing this commercial and he's discovering in real time realization is happening that he is a toy. And even then he goes and he tries to fly to prove himself that he's not. He knows. I think you can see in his face, which is, Amazing that you can see in his face in a piece of animated toy. That's mm-hmm. why Pixar is awesome. Yeah. That, you, that he knows, right? He, he there's no question. It has come upon him. I am a toy, but he doesn't want to believe that. So he goes and he tries to fly, and it obviously does not go well. And it reminds me of that moment in Ex Machina where Caleb cuts himself to see, like, am I a robot or am I a human? Like, I know I'm a human, but now I'm really starting to doubt it. And it's like that test. And Buzz really has a mental breakdown, man. I mean, it is a serious breakdown that he goes through and it just feels very accurate to me. It feels like a realistic reaction that you might have. If something you've thought to be true your whole life, something that you believed about your identity is no longer the case. And this is something that people can experience in real life all the time. You know, if you grew up believing you had a certain heritage, believing someone was your mom and dad, and then you find out, Oh, you're really adopted. It's a similar thing to what buzz is going through in my opinion. Right. It's definitely a realistic reaction when he is going through that moment of depression. And and Woody does the same thing, but it's interesting because Woody's reaction and his frustration about where his identity is is not finding out that he's a toy. Like he celebrates the fact that he's a toy. His identity is thwarted because of the fact that he's no longer valuable, that he's no longer his identity up until that moment that Buzz shows up, his identity was wrapped up in being Andy's toy and being Andy's like go-to. And so when Buzz shows up, Woody's like, well, who am I now? I mean, all I am, I have this just dumb pull string. You know, this is, this is nothing. And so seeing both of these characters go through this transformation of saying what we thought we were is not true. But that doesn't change the fact that who we actually are is just as important, which I think leads heavily to the final third act of the movie uh, in which they come together in their friendship and and work together. So the, speaking of that friendship, that's what permeates this story throughout. And it's, it, you know, we we're going to experience this and we're probably going to talk about friendship a lot more as we move on through the series, because now they're already friends. And in this one, it's, it's that first act of the trilogy where they're, they're fighting and they're not, they don't realize they're friends yet, but they, mm-hmm. they're, but it, it does remind me of what it's like to have conflict sometimes with your friends, mm-hmm. the way in which these guys mess with each other. Um, the, the, it's it's really fun 
and and the way that they kind of try to sabotage each other is is quite hilarious at times <laughs> uh, because everybody wants to get you know everybody wants to get one up and um i, I just I, it really reminded me of friendship at a young age at a at a child's age or a teenager's age um did do you feel that way too do you feel like it's a good depiction of that something that people can relate to i think it is because when you have two people who it's it's ego for various reasons, yes, it's, ego, it is ego. It's, it's ego all over the place. And Buzz and Woody are both trying to jockey for position for, again, their own particular reasons. And it's, it's funny to see, it's funny to see not just Woody and his kind of, um, what do you call it, insecurities come to light early on in the film, but seeing the other toys reacting to his insecurities because he's been the leader of this group. You know, he's clearly the one who, who, who stands above them all and is the, is the, the leader of the pack. Vroom, vroom, vroom. Yeah. In this case, you know, uh, you know, cowboy, um, but seeing them like, for instance, when, when he pushes buzz or he, he tries to push buzz out of the, uh, out of the window ends up kind of doing it. And you, you when see he murders buzz. He tries he to murders, murder. He tries There's a to great murder video buzz. about that on YouTube, by the way, where it's like <laughs> dissecting the shot for shot scene for scene, um, you know, frame by frame. It is Woody trying to murder buzz. He's yeah. not by the way. But at the, but at the end of the day, it's, it's really about one person or two people or two, two characters that, are trying to establish the alpha maleness of the, Supremacy. Of the yeah. and so it, it's very much what we experience. I mean, not you and I specifically that might come up, but what friendship in general brings with it a sense of, Hey, I've got that and you're jealous of it. So now you're going to tell me about something else that you have or there. What think, up friendship? Yeah. And I think that's just natural part of friendship. The, the, the thing about solid friendships for me that I've learned and what I think is depicted in Toy Story is the ability to recognize the strengths and weaknesses of each other and to elevate those things and to to lean on those things and to say, this is why uh, you and I are friends and this is what you bring and this is what I bring. And uh, Woody and Buzz, I think, articulate that, particularly in the last half of the film and understanding where their strengths and weaknesses lie and how they depend on that for each other. Absolutely. And I love where we end up with this because at the end of the film and the, in the final sequence and the climaxes, you know, they sacrifice for each other multiple times, very various occasions where they are taking turns, sacrificing themselves for each other back and forth, trying to save each other. And I, I love that. It's one of my favorite things in movies is watching people sacrifice for others. And it's probably because I don't see enough of it happening in real life. Um, but it's, you know, sacrifice to me is, is, what love is in many ways, I very strongly define love as sacrificial because I think that it's a sign of that when you're willing to give up something you want, give up of yourself uh, for someone else. And I see a lot of that in what Wood and Wood, Woody and Buzz do yeah. at the end of this film. And, you know, at the end of the day, they're both there for Andy and Andy's bed has a cowboy and a space ranger pillow on it. it right. I noticed that in this viewing and I had this aww moment like where my heart sunk in a good way. I guess it didn't sink. I guess it kind of got lifted up and I just realized like, man, that's sweet. That's awesome. You know what? Like, because what, what, what matters the most is that 
they're equal in the eyes of their owner, creator, owner, however you want to look at that. I mean, I, I, from a faith-based standpoint, I, I can say, you know, like I'm equal in the eyes of my creator, but yeah, sure. in the, in the eyes of their owner, they are equal. There yeah. is no one better than the other. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I just, I thought that was a great subtle man, so subtle visualization and just another obvious spark of like what makes Pixar so brilliant. Yeah. Briefly, before we jump into connecting points, what about Sid? So Sid's going to have a bigger role as we move forward, of course, but here he is, the bully. Um, He likes to hurt things. So I want to ask you, did you ever do anything like Sid? Is there a story that you're willing to admit of terrorizing your toys? No, no. I loved all of my toys. In fact, I hated cross-pollinating my toys with other toys. Like I didn't like I didn't like using my G.I. Joe's and my He-Man action figures together. I didn't like doing that. I liked Patrick keeping my, is a toy segregationist. I really am. I'm I'm just I'm like, you know. <laughs> yes, you're one of those people back, that will like get back back of the bedroom that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. It's like that's right. Like <laughs> Transformers and G.I. Joe's were not gonna occupy the same world to me. Mom, Which, I need another Tupperware bin. I, I you can't do this. I gotta keep these guys separate. But that being said, I definitely did not torture my 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 toys. I thought my toys were uh, pristine and they were going to remain intact with all their arms. In fact, if one of my toys lost a part, an appendage, I would have to go back and get a new one because I felt like it, it's broken, so I can't use it anymore. I was not that guy. Well, I will go ahead and admit to our listeners, hopefully I don't lose any points here, and if I do, so be it, that I was a little bit of a Sid. Um I didn't experiment quite that much. I didn't like to take like Barbie heads and put them on GI Joes and things like that. But I did occasionally mix and match some GI Joe parts. Okay. Like, you know, I like to have certain arms on other characters or legs on other characters. The thing that I did the most though was use my G.I. Joes and my starting lineup figures. I don't know if you remember what those are. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Sporting figures. I would set them up in lines, and I would I would use uh, the bow and arrow or the BB gun, pellet gun, to um, use them as target practice. And then I would also occasionally, you know, or a couple times a year when they were available, I might have some explosives in the mix with those toys. But I mean, that's about as far as I went to um, terrorizing my toys. I feel bad about it though, after watching toy story, because I'm thinking about like them screaming and melting and just, it's not, it's not pleasant anymore. Um, But you know, honestly, the thing about Sid, this movie came out before Columbine and school shootings. and, And it makes me wonder if the character of Sid would have worked after Columbine, because I feel like Sid is the depiction of, the young child that we a lot of times assume or project as someone that it could be a likely candidate for ultimately, you know, becoming a school shooter or, or having some sort of mental breakdown um, in a violent way. Mm-hmm. I think the tone of toy story doesn't necessitate that kind of portrayal. At least I didn't pick that up and I'm pretty sensitive to, the school shootings and the, and the kind of the, the climate that we're living in. 
Sid to me represents, I think, what any kid just having fun in a more dark tone <laughs> for for playing with with toys. I think all of us can relate to either being Sid or knowing someone like Sid, but not to the extent of saying that was a troubled child. It was just someone who played differently than we did, or someone who played like us. Uh, he he doesn't come across as someone who needs help. I think he comes across as someone who who needs to get justice and um, in a comedic way. And the tone of Toy Story, I don't think, necessitates his portrayal being a potential um, like this guy could be a potential shooter at some point. So no, I, I think, I think it still works fine even in today's climate. Perfect. Well, I love that the toys get revenge. Uh, it's one of the best scenes in the movie and the way that Woody's head spins when he gives, oh when he gives Sid the speech and he says, so play nice, like the best. That's like, it's a, definitely one of my top three moments in this movie. <laughs> it's so funny. Freaking it's... love it. And it's so out of place. Like it's it's so just creepy and crazy and nutty. Yeah, what's what's even funnier is when after everything happens, and Buzz makes it. It's almost like as a director, he's directing. He's like, "I love it when you came out of the sand like that. That was so yes. good. It's yes, like, I love that when they're critiquing the performances. Yeah, it's like that's so funny. It is so good. Well, last uh, last little trivia note before we jump into the connecting points is that in the car when they're driving, they are listening to and singing Hakuna Matata. And it is only one year after the Lion King came out from Disney. So it's a little, little fun thing that they quickly incorporated into this movie. And I thought that was neat. I don't don't know of a lot of instances where that happens. I can't think of any. I don't know either. And I think it, maybe it foreshadows the relationship that Disney and Pixar were eventually going to have. Uh Uh-huh. Maybe not the acquisition of Pixar by Disney, but I know that after that, or maybe, I think maybe Toy Story was connected respect. back. I think it was respect. Yeah. Um, and, and we'll talk more about their history as, as we talk through these next two movies, but there's definitely a little bit of a, like, Hey, there might be more to come. And, you know, we appreciate what you're doing. You appreciate what we're doing. Well, let's go ahead and get to our connecting point. Uh, that's that moment that we both resonated with the most for the film. And, I got to tell you, this was one of those where it's a no brainer for me. And it's kind of nice because the last film we did was Annihilation and I didn't have a connecting point, which was super rare. And this one, I didn't even have to question it. It was hands down obvious uh, that it was going to be one moment. And for me, it's the entire scene where Woody and Buzz are becoming friends, so to speak, and they're dealing with their issues. And Woody says this to Buzz. He says, why would Andy want you? Look at you. You're a Buzz Lightyear. Any other toy would give up his moving parts just to be you. You've got wings. You glow in the dark. You talk. Your helmet does that that whoosh thing. You're a cool toy. And that line is the one that I take away the most from this entire movie. I, I literally feel myself welling up with tears or joyful emotion when I say you're a cool toy because it's the way in which Woody is affirming buzz. He is supporting buzz. He's encouraging buzz and he's inspiring buzz. And so in explaining this to him, he's telling him that he's more 
then being a toy is more than being just a space ranger. Because what matters to Andy is that he's a toy, not what kind of toy necessarily. Um, and then it goes on and Buzz sees Andy's name on his boot, which is just another like big gut punch, like emotional Pixar mo- moment for us. Um, and Buzz saves Woody and he gets quote on mission at that point. And for me, this is where that friendship bond becomes so strong. And it's just a huge pivotal moment in the series. It, it, it changes everything in this movie, but it sets us up for the amazing stories we're going to get to be um, told in Toy Story 2 and 3 and hopefully ultimately Toy Story 4. Um, and at the same time, it just it gives and kind of confirms, like I said, that that message about identity and self-worth and that maybe it's not about what we are, but it's about what we can be and do for others that matters most. And so for me, that whole, and it's a pretty big scene, but that big scene is super powerful and emotional. Yeah, it's it's mine too, hands down. And it's, I, I see two things in there. I, I resonate with Woody quite a bit. He's a, he's a character that I think is, he and Buzz are both the glue that, that hold this franchise together. But he stands out to me because I think he has one of the biggest character arcs in the film and throughout the trilogy. And for me, it's what happens after that speech that you mentioned and what Buzz says as he's trying to free Woody. He says, let's get you out of here. There's a kid over there that needs us. He needs us. That word just stands out to me. And I think what Woody in that moment offers is he offers an apology. Like I think he's asking forgiveness from Buzz when he talks about the fact that, you know, any toy we would give his moving parts just to be you, you are, uh, you have this cool stuff, you know, what you are a cool toy to me. That's, that's, that's Woody's way of saying, look, <laughs> I admit you're great. And I've been a jerk. <laughs> I think in some way that's what he's saying, but we also need to understand that Buzz needed to understand that that Andy loved both of them equally. And we see that in a couple of pockets of the movie. And later when Woody disappears, uh, we see how Andy is upset about that. How he's like, I, I just, he was just right here. And those, that conversation reminds me that, that being part of someone's life may mean that we aren't that person's favorite at a given point. I can attest to that being a husband and a dad <laughs> that I'm probably not my wife's favorite or my kid's favorite, uh, at, at any given point. I mean, I'm hoping that the majority of the time I am, but that doesn't negate the fact that there's love in that relationship. My wife and my son do not doubt that I love them. And they, and I do not doubt that they love me. They may not like me <laughs> for one reason or another, but what you mentioned, that idea of, of genuine love and sacrifice it's what sticks with me. It's what sticks with those friendships and relationships that we have. And for Buzz and Woody and their common ground with Andy, that is what I think real love looks like and how they both gained an understanding of their real purpose. That it's not just that being a toy is important. Being Andy's toy is what was important. And looking at the boot, you know, looking at his name on the bottom of their shoes, that's pivotal, man. That's a great visual for both of them because they both looked at their boots at one point. I think, you know, 
and and that happens um, that happens again in second and third movie. It's it's a it's an important part of the story uh, and the narrative as a, as a whole. And so I think for me, that whole scene, just like you, resonated and summed up what I think their friendship it was all about and how it be, how it how it started and what the rest of their friendship is going to going to look like going forward. Yep. That's good stuff, man. It's good stuff. I love it when we have the same one and we get kind of a multiple perspectives from it and get to kind of break it down like that. Um, so I, I'm not surprised at all <laughs> that this was one that we both picked equal equally. Well, uh, this has been a great start. It's been a lot of fun. I'm excited to do parts two and three and go through those as well and see where this story takes us and what we can glean from it. So what about uh, people, where can they find you online if they want to talk to you further or offer their thoughts? Yeah. Check me out on uh, Facebook and Twitter. I'm at shoeless patch S H O E L E S S P A T C H on Twitter. You can also find me by searching Patrick Hicks on, uh, on Facebook or checking me out in the uh, Facebook group. I'm obviously a member there, admin, all that kind of stuff. Uh, be sure to at me and tag me so we can continue the conversation about this or any other movie that we've talked about. All right. And you can find me at Aaron L. White, A-A-R-O-N-E-L-W-H-I-T-E on Twitter, Facebook, etc. And also in that awesome Facebook discussion group that we love to promote so much. So come there, join that, talk about movies with all of your other fellow Toy Story lovers. Uh, we'll talk soon, Patrick. Until next time, listeners, always stay positive. And keep feeling filmed.